You've always had what it takes to make it happen. And we know the right tools can make it easier. At Strayer University, we're always thinking about new ways to set you up for success. That's why we give you a brand new laptop when you enroll in a bachelor's program. So you can start off on the right foot and keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Eligibility rules, restrictions, and exclusions apply. Connect with us for details. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by Chef. You've tuned in to Columbia Calling, your first stop for everything you want to know about Columbia. How and where to invest, where to visit. From the Pacific to the Caribbean, the Andes Mountains to the Amazon jungle, Columbia has a slice of everything. Shooting from the hip, answering the questions that need answering. Here's your host, the journalist and hotelier Richard McCall, shedding some light on the fashionable South American destination of Columbia. Hey, it's that time of the weekend, folks. This is me, your host, Richard McCall, here in Bogota, Colombia. 2,600 meters closer to the stars, and this is episode 425 of the Columbia Calling Podcast. Thank you to everyone who tuned in this last week and has been, well, supporting us so fervently in the last few months. Of course, those of you, special, special abrazo virtual to all of our Patreon supporters. If you want to support us, that's patreon.com forward slash Columbia Calling. I should also mention the sponsors for this show. Uh, the Columbia Calling Podcast is sponsored by Latin News, a leading source for political and economic analysis on Latin America and the Caribbean since 1967. Their flagship publication, the Latin American Weekly Report, provides a behind-the-scenes briefing on all the week's key developments throughout the region. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at latinnews.com. And also, this episode is brought to you by BNB Columbia Tours, expert in custom made travel throughout Colombia. The team at BNB Colombia Tours can provide you with a fantastic private experience or of course creating wonderful memories of Colombia for a lifetime. Check out the website at bnbcolombia.com, complete the free itinerary form, what you're looking for, and tell them that Colombia Calling sent you to receive a further 5% off their already great prices. So thank you to Latin News and BNB Columbia Tours. On this episode 425, we have Hannah Mizaros Martin back on the show. You'll remember her from episode 413 when we talked about forensic architecture. Dr. Uh, Ms. Aros Martin this time will be talking about her extensive research in the use of glyphosate uh, as an eradication, a form of eradicating um, coca, of course, the crop that produces or is used to produce coca paste for cocaine. Uh, her, her research goes very, very deeply into this topic, and I think you'll find it quite incredible, some of the uh, stories and facts that she gives us from her work in the field and of course her investigations on this so i'm now going to say that emily hart is back this week to provide us with the uh, news brief and then we'll be back with hannah miseros martin talking about glyphosate, its use its history and so on so thank you again for listening and don't go away i'm emily hart and these are your columbia headlines for the week of may 23rd 2022. 
With less than a week until elections, the latest polls still have left-wing candidate Gustavo Petro in the lead, with around 40% of voting intention. Right-wing candidate Federico Gutierrez has around 25% of voting intention. Centrist Sergio Fajardo has continued to drop in recent months, now polling at 5%. The surprise outcome of these latest polls is the jump in popularity of independent candidate Rodolfo Hernández, who has leapt to 20% from just 10% one month ago. Hernández has mostly run on an anti-establishment and anti-corruption ticket. Given that no candidate is currently near 50% of voting intentions, it looks like there will not be a first-round winner of the presidency in the vote this Sunday. This means a runoff election will be held in June, with the two top candidates facing off. Almost all polls up to this point have consistently suggested that Petro would win a runoff election against any other candidate. Police have confirmed that a microphone was found in the campaign headquarters of Gutierrez a device which transmitted audio and video in real time. He immediately, and without evidence, called upon opponent Petro to respond. Petro and Gutierrez have each traded accusations that the other's campaign is receiving support from illegal armed groups in Colombia. Both have also reported death threats and assassination plots. Nearly 100 political and cultural leaders from more than 20 countries published a letter this week, to express concern about the growing threat of violence, assassination and interference ahead of the election on Sunday. Political violence is not limited to candidates, the letter emphasises, referring to the assassination of social leaders. So far, more than 50 social leaders have been murdered this year in Colombia. The letter also referred to the recent armed strike by the Clan del Golfo as a threat to the democratic process. Signatories of the letter include U.S. congressmen, British MPs, the former president of Ecuador, Noam Chomsky, and Yanis Varoufakis. The Ombudsman's office says that of the 521 municipalities that it monitors, 290 are at extreme and high risk of possible violent acts by armed groups, particularly the ELN guerrilla group and the Clan del Golfo, also known as the Autodefensas Gaitanistas de Colombia, the AGC. This list is 16 more municipalities than the list in March. Colombia has 1,123 municipalities. The update follows the revelations of the extent of power and territorial presence of the latter group during the armed strike earlier this month, which paralyzed communities in 12 departments for three days, alongside dozens of murders, roadblocks, and armed patrols. Colombia's president, Ivan Duque, meanwhile, is on tour in Europe, where he and British Prime Minister Boris Johnson have formalized a free trade agreement. This makes Colombia one of the first countries to enter into free trade agreements with Great Britain following Brexit. The agreement includes chapters on infrastructure, energy, agribusiness, life sciences, financial services and creative industries, and the pair reportedly also discussed climate change and energy transition. The United Kingdom is the third largest investor in Colombia. In 2021, it invested around 400 million US dollars. Those were your top stories for this week. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next Monday.
And we're back. This is episode 425 of the Columbia Calling Podcast. I'm Richard McCall here in Bogota, Colombia. Uh, my very special guest needs no, no introduction. She's been on the podcast before, episode 413, when we discussed forensic architecture, which was, I mean, for me, totally fascinating. Uh, and we, of course, we went through the, sort of the, the taking of the Palacio de Justicia and, well, things of that nature, the killing of Lucas Villa in Pereira during the uh, Paro Nacional demonstrations. But Hannah, Dr. Hannah Mazaros Martin is back. Uh, she's, you know, like a senior, a senior researcher, I think, at Goldsmiths and has done all sorts of studies on glyphosate. Uh, for those of us who speak Spanglish, that's glyphosato, <laughs> um, but glyphosate is used in the eradication of the coca plant. At the moment, it's currently sort of, uh, it's prohibited as a, one of the measures on the 2016 peace accords. But we're going to learn a bit more about the history of it and bring it up to date. So Hannah, welcome back on the Columbia Calling podcast. Thanks so much for the invitation. It's great to be back. No, well, it's a real pleasure to have you back and a real pleasure to have someone with so much expertise in Colombia because, I mean, from forensic architecture, studying sort of criminal acts, uh, usually, you know, and, and state forces covering up these acts, as we covered in 413, now we're going on to glyphosate, which is another hot potato <laughs> let's say um can you can you give us a little bit of info as to how you came to be so involved in in, the, in an investigation of this type so yeah i i first started to study um aerial fumigation as an eradication technique of illicit crops, so-called illicit crops in, in Colombia during my master's, actually, um, which started in 2011. And then from there, I kind of didn't stop. Uh, I, I went to Colombia for the first time to investigate the matter. And then I realized that, um, you know, this wasn't going to be realized in a single master's. And I, I took on a PhD. Um, I got additional funding for for additional artistic projects, because I'm also coming from an artistic background. And I've been researching the matter for about 10 years now. Um, so that was my, my introduction to, to the, to the issue really came, you know, at a moment in which I, I looked at the tactic of aerial fumigation as eradication, as a, as a kind of paradigm, paradigmatic um, practice, which brought together environmental violence and human rights violations. And at that particular moment in time, uh, Colombia was the only country in the world that actually allowed aerial fumigation as an eradication technique. Um, there have been other inst instances where, you know, they, they've done it in Afghanistan over poppy fields um, in Peru, um, as well as uh, it, there's been incidences in, in Mexico, in, mm. in Guatemala. But at that particular moment, it was Colombia. And I really also wanted to investigate its effects in conjunction with the armed conflict. Mm. So that was my introduction to it. 10 years makes you a foremost mind on this subject. You know, most of us are journalists, you know, we dip in, we read something, we write something, and then it's, it's 
archived, <laughs> but 10 years of, of investigation on this. Perhaps let's start from the beginning, because it, it, I, I mean, I'm fascinated of where this glyphosate comes from and how it became the, the, the chemical to use in this fashion. So this is a really fascinating story because this is not just a story of Colombia. This is a global story. Um, and this isn't even, you know, a story that just begins with glyphosate. Actually, we have to go back even further to understand this. Don't worry, your audience, I won't take you back too, too far um, like I could. But I think it's important um, to understand the context in which um, herbicides, uh, as they've been used in war, kind of came about as a global practice. Mm -hmm. um, so... A big part of my research focused actually on the development of herbicides in the colonial context, actually um, in the UK, um, in various colonies, specifically in Africa and Southeast Asia, in which they kind of did experimentations on um, a twofold scale. First of all, they were looking to eliminate what they thought of as pests, mm. these kind of um, yeah, insects which were um, disrupting different economies that they were hoping to propagate in these in these colonies. But also, um, it started to very quickly um, become realized that this could become a tactic in war. Mm. Um, so, the colonies actually became testing grounds um, for like mass amounts of chemicals at this point. Um, glyphosate was not being used, but the beginnings of Agent Orange were actually um, being tested in these contexts. And then the British were the first to use um, herbicides in the context of war and what, um, what was called the Malaya Emergency, which was in fact a colonial um, uh, uprising against the British. And they used it to starve out, um, you know, vast populations and um it was it was i would say it was controversial but the the british tried to really cover up what they what they did there um with especially with the starvation tactics and they were also very aware you know this is coming off the back of world war ii that they didn't want to be associated with um anything to do with chemical warfare right so they were very careful to call this quote-unquote an emergency um and not an actual um, armed conflict. Um, from there, you know, you can trace the the direct like trading of knowledge and usage of um, herbicides between the UK and the US. The US then, of course, takes um, takes herbicides to um, Korea and then to Vietnam, very infamously in Vietnam. Um, and I'm I'm kind of running through history a little bit here because I. I do want to get to the moment where glyphosate is invented. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, glyphosate is, is kind of found in 1970 at this very um, important juncture in history where you also have, um, you know, the U.S. receiving a lot of public criticism and awareness of the use of Agent Orange in Vietnam, the public is kind of horrified at this, right? Um, it's very much giving rise also to an environmental consciousness which hasn't existed yet. And so, you know, glyphosate is, ma is made in this moment and it's not immediately associated with that, right? It's, it's kind of, you know, 
on the other end of the spectrum, you have the agro industrial industry trying to develop techniques to, you know, grow a mass amount of food and spray a mass amount of herbicides without rendering the entirety of, you know, the soil sterile. So when glyphosate was found, um, it was found to be, um, you know, dissipating in the soil so that the effects were allegedly not staying in the soil. And, you know, it didn't seem to have these kind of negative health effects that like, you know, Agent Orange was very, very, uh, very much considered carcinogenic. I mean, at least in scientific communities at that point. And it was starting to become very obvious that, you know, vets, at least in the U.S., were, were developing very negative um, effects from their interaction with Asian orange. Sorry. But glyphosate seemed to be like this promise into a new herbicidal future in which you could spray these herbicides over, you know, vast swaths of land and, you know, it wouldn't have this lasting effect. Mm -hmm. Um, so we're in the 1970s, right? So the U S kind of closes the Vietnam War and, you know, promises to stop the usage of herbicides in, in the context of war, given the, the kind of public uprising. When in fact, what really happens is they are already planning it in another conflict, which is the drug war, yeah. which in the mid-70s is really kicking up. They actually start to experiment with herbicides as eradication technique in Mexico because they got um, kind of an immediate agreement to do that. Um, And they started to use a very, very um, seriously toxic compound called Paraquat, um, which got, um, it's it's basically, uh, it it affects the lungs immediately. So it's very, very toxic on the human body. Um, and they started to spray marijuana crops with this in, in Mexico. And then we get to Colombia in 1978, actually, which is, um, you know, also a year in which, um, a lot of things are are happening in Colombia. I think we talked in the last episode, Mm. perhaps about the, the state of siege, which was instigated actually in that year under the, the government of, um, Turbay. And, you know, this, you know, eradication is kind of also a militaristic mindset and strategy also really arrived in this moment in Colombia in this in this year. Um, and you can really kind of plant the, the beginnings of the eradication campaign to that specific time period. Um, glyphosate, as far as I can um, see in my own research, wasn't immediately used. Um, you know, the, the U.S. government put an immense amount of pressure on Colombia to start actually fumigating with Paraquat. Um, they refused for what what seems to be a few years. But then in 1984, um, they actually start to experiment with glyphosate. Um, and they start to experiment with glyphosate in, um, in around uh, the, the mountains in, in Santa Marta where there was a lot of cultivation of marijuana at that time. Um, And then they kind of continue this experimentation phase for more or less um, 10 years uh, until it's actually approved as a proper um, program uh, in in 1994. Hmm. 
Wow. I'll, I'll maybe leave it there for, for a historical summary. We, we've done quite a lot. And I, I've got some things that jump up because I know that my listeners will say, in the Malay emergency, what were the British using to starve out, uh, let's say, the, the uprising? So that was a mixture um, of what, like, what would then become known as Agent Orange. Okay, um, so it was the... Yeah, so it's... Um, it, it was not yet called that. It was it was the kind of two different chemicals that mm-hmm. once combined became that. Um, Agent Orange had a few different mixtures, which led to the rainbow herbicides, right? Mm-hmm. All that had, I mean, they had different varying effects. Um, in Korea, I also know that there, there was a DuPont sto- soil sterilin- a ter- sterilizer used um, by the U.S. Mm-hmm. sprayed over vast swaths of land. Um and, you know, this, these are all compounds that actually, even at the time they were developed, it was already known that they were very, very damaging to human health. Right. And then when we go to Paraquat, was it ever used in Colombia? Um, was it ever used in Colombia? There are reports that they have been. I mean, it's, we'll talk about this probably in a little bit about the issue of data access. Mm. Um, but from, you know, not just myself, but a lot of researchers that, that work on this, it is known that a lot of different things were experimented with. Um, it is really not recorded very well mm. how many different um, kinds of chemicals they used. Um, the U.S. experimented with Paraquat actually on their own territory. Um, I made a film about the experimentation that they did in the Chattahoochee National Park, um, so, which is in Georgia. Okay, I was going to say the Carolinas, but Carolinas, but no, I'm not that far. <laughs> yeah, no, it's in it's in Georgia, um, and they also experimented on the Florida Everglades, um, which they kind of took to be like you know conditions, forested conditions, kind of semi tropical conditions that would mimic the conditions of um, you know the the tropical environments where. Um, these insurgencies that they wanted to combat in the Cold War were flourishing. And they also experimented in Oregon with uh, Agent Orange, which is also very... stuff I had no knowledge of. And so have there been been results shown of the carcinogenic sort of fallout for local communities or the nature in the areas in the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, there there was um, a big effort actually made by a very brave woman uh, who put together this um, it's a website. It's called The Poison Papers, which mm-hmm. um, documents the use of Agent Orange in Oregon. Oregon? I think it's Oregon. Or upstate Washington. I mean, they, they experimented along the, the Pacific Coast. And, you know, she she tried for decades of legal battles, you know, against the use of this. Um, and, um, you know, this this has been a very underrepresented um, yeah. uh, issue in the U.S. and the various communities that have suffered for this, um, you know, have not received the kind of compensation that they that they are entitled to, certainly. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's an embarrassing more than anything, isn't it, for these these entities that did it. It's, it's in a period where I suppose it was quite rife by all sort of empire designs. <laughs> um, but 
nobody wants to admit it. Now, I was reading a phenomenal, long uh, journalism piece in the New York Times about Haiti, and it came out, I think it was yesterday, the day before, and talking about sort of the precursor to Citibank and so on and so forth receiving, and you're like, oh, and the, and the French nobility receiving sort of payoffs for the, for the uprising in Haiti. And you sort of, I, I sort of now put it together. Um, uh, we just don't know. We just don't have this information of what is out there until it becomes sort of in the public's interest and i suppose in this kind of day and age we are addressing more uh you know the the crimes of the past a little bit more but if someone in oregon because i i think of oregon as someone pacific northwest paradise you know i think of this and to know that it's had asian orange (laughs) sprayed on it somewhere is quite it's 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 quite a peculiar feeling because you you get this idea of Oregon you, you know it's quite alternative out there it's certainly de- very environmental and yet it was used <laughs> as as a, a, a testing ground and and then oh god so but my my point at the end of it is that you know the city bank link for Haiti the people making Agent Orange must be the big chemical companies today the big pharmaceuticals i want to say you probably can't name them but you could just sort of say yes or no that yeah they are big companies today that had their past linked to this efforts definitely definitely they did um i mean following the companies is another kind of transnational network Mm. that you can definitely run through many different imperial colonial wars until the present um I mean, Monsanto, who is the, the original maker of glyphosate until the patent was liberated in, in the early 2000s, and actually now anyone can produce glyphosate, um, is very implicated in this, in this story. Now, of course, Bayer um, Chemicals bought Monsanto. Yeah. So they're kind of taking on, I guess, that legacy, um, although they don't have a good legacy themselves. So, you know, I guess what's, what's one bad legacy more. Um, but yeah, I think, I think in the, you know, in, in the, in my own work, like glyphosate does feature a lot because, because it is, it is, um, you know, very prominently debated, especially in the moment in which I entered into the research. Um, because while I was actually conducting my field work, um, you know, in, in 2015, actually the constitutional court in Colombia decided to ban the aerial fumigation um, using glyphosate kind of, I mean, that's a reaction to a few things. Like, I mean, this, there had been mass protests mm. about this mm. practice for a while already, but then the World Health Report that kind of came out and named it as a probable carcinogen really um, kind of expedited this this process. Um, also, of course, this is in the middle of the peace um, negotiations. So, you know, the Santos administration had a lot of incentive actually at that point to um, suspend the practice. Um, it's important to say, though, that they did not stop using glyphosate in um, ground eradication. So it's still sprayed from backpacks um, with sprayers and 
Um, they tried, they piloted a program for a while also to spray it from drones, which kind of failed. Um, and then from like little robots, which I think also failed, but, um, they haven't stopped using it. And also it's important to say they haven't stopped using it in large scale agriculture either, not in Colombia nor, nor the rest of the world. So it's, it's still being used uh, in fumigation of, of, I don't know, say regular crops then. Yeah. And that, that is, that is applied early actually. Oh. So if you go to the Valle de Cauca and you go to, um, you know, sugarcane plantation, these, these, these are also planes that are spraying these chemicals. And there are also communities. I also worked with a few different um, communities in the Valle um, who, you know, had nothing to do with coca. They were just, you know, campesinos living in the midst of the sugar fields and their crops would get sprayed um, just by simply living in proximity to them, which, of course, they had no other choice but to live there. Mm. Um, so this is an issue that that touches... I think agricultural life in Colombia in many different ways, not just in the illicit crop mm. sense. As you say in an article that you sent me, it's this this uh, sort of meeting of illicit and illicit, isn't it? It's, as you say, and I had no idea. Well, I mean, you know, I probably should have had an idea, but I had no idea that it was used sort of in this again illicit sense in the you know sugar cane. I'm sure it's used up in Cesar in the huge palm uh, areas, and and I, I had no idea about this. So it's still entering the water table. It's still entering the aquifers uh, beneath these areas and then filtering into the rivers. Um, and, uh, well, w w what are the... Okay, the, you, said, you talked about the report saying it's a probable carcinogen. So that sounds to me like politicians use that word. It's probable, therefore it's not 100% confirmed, so therefore we can continue to use it. We need to change. We need to change the language that's surrounding this. So therefore, it's a bit more. Uh, I mean, definitive. But what? I mean, we okay. We talk about the probable carcinogen. What are the results? What have? What has been found uh, to be the result of this? The use of this chemical. So actually, for the World Health Organization, which is you know band of scientists, we don't mm. like to say things definitively ever. Science. <laughs> uh, science. Um, probable is actually pretty high. Okay. Probable is like pretty much yes. You know, okay. that's a that's a pretty big scientific yes. Um, it's important to say that actually they were for they were forced to withdraw that from I think pressure from Bayer um, mm. Monsanto. Um, and then I think there was fight from the scientific community to get it reinstated. And in any case, you, you know, if you look to science to kind of give you a history of this, you also have a history of, you know, scientists positioned within Monsanto, within all these different chemical companies, basically producing reports to counter and counter and counter any sort of claim that is made on the destructive nature of these herbicides, both to the human body and to the environment. So, you know, the result now um, is that, you know, there, there, there is, you know, continuing work being done, not only in its carcinogenic effects, but also in its potential um, effects to genetic disorders, to, um, you know, there, there have been also reports um, all over Colombia, actually, where, where the herbicide has been used of, you know, babies being born with, um, you know, severe um, de deformation or health um, 
health issues. Um, and, you know, when I, when I would speak to clinicians and people, especially coming from Putumayo, where I did the majority of my work, um, you know, the, the clinicians were also threatened to not say anything about these. So I think in Colombia specifically, um, you know, with the, with the detrimental health effects, like it is, it is something which is not very well known because people are also very, were very afraid, still are afraid to come out and say what actually the effects were Mm. and still are. Um, I also think that because, you know, we are, let's say this is 1970, we're looking at in a global perspective. We are, we are still, you know, in a, in a kind of scientific lifetime looking at the, the effects of this. Cause now you start to have second generations of people, you know, you know, individuals, generations who've grown up only in this environment of mass usage of glyphosate. And so the health effects um, are really now starting to be understood. Mm. And that is, terrifying actually um because as i think one one scientist one doctor i spoke to in italy said to me the ramazzini center which is um uh focusing very much on glyphosate research you know this is this is irreversible Mm. this is an irreversible global issue that's that's yeah i mean that's pretty firm and this irreversible global issue and say it's it the use dates back to the 1970s in Colombia it becomes formalized in 1994 it becomes I would say massified (laughs) massified in the 2000s with planned Colombia and then we have this turn let's say 2015 where we those of us who are not knowledgeable on this think oh the use is being uh, you know, it's it's being cut back, and it's it's a peace accord thing. And but I had no idea. Again, as in, I didn't know it was being used on licit crops, and I had no idea that it was still being sprayed. I thought they were using something else in those images. So really, we're still using it. And I understand as well. And it must be a security thing from back in the in the heady days of the conflict in the nineties and two thousands when they were doing this that the planes wouldn't swoop down low, they would actually spray from a higher elevation. And therefore, it's, it, you know, the, the, the area that is then receiving the chemical is far, far wider than the actual sort of coca cultivation. So, I mean, where do we go from here? Because you talk about this deformations, and you talk about this, we're talking about, uh, you know, it's irreversible, uh, where do we find the information and where do we find the data to be able to back up all the claims and, and say, listen, you know, when, when the people are out there demonstrating and say, listen, these guys are right. So I should, okay, <laughs> I should qualify a bit my research. And I mean, I'm a, I'm a visual researcher, okay. right? Visual investigator, um, you know, coming from the practice of, of, forensic architecture, but also visual, visual studies. So when I investigated, um, you know, this is this issue historically, I actually kind of, um, investigated it from a visual perspective. Mm. And that's not just thinking about, you know, images as like, let's say representations of something, but actually the role of images and the role of data 
data as image um, in this practice, right? So I actually started to look at the use of photography um, in the verification and perpetuation of fumigation, not only in the context of of yeah large kind of large scale agriculture and, and knowing those effects, but also in war, right? And when I traced us back to um, the British use of it in their colonies and the US use in Vietnam, they both used aerial photography as um, ways in which to analyze their own effectiveness on the battlefield um, using herbicides. So I found this, you know, coming from this visual perspective, like very fascinating that photography um, had this big role in, Mm. um, you know, establishing this as a, as a technique. And this, um, of course, continued, Um, this continued um, into the use of it in the context of the Cold War in Latin America, but with a big, big difference. Um, You know, the Vietnam War is actually one of the most documented wars in the history of war. Um, and then the U.S. kind of learned that if you document yourself and, and you have all these images floating around and people get really angry and, you know, they can blame you for things. Um, so they kind of stopped that and, you know, went into a series of dirty wars, right? What is known as the dirty wars um, in which, you know, things were uh, not recorded. And basically the whole practice wasn't to record. It was in fact to erase. And so herbicides in the context of Colombia, very much fell into that practice. When, you know, you kind of look at the origins and the beginnings of this, um, I was able to find documentation of its usage actually in the U.S., you know, in, in different national parks. But when it moved to Colombia, the images kind of go black. And, um, you know, what instead, what I what did I ended up finding um, this is through uh, the National Security Archive Project, which um, collected a mass amount of documents from DynCor, which was the um, aviation company that the U.S. contracted to run the fumigation campaign. Uh, they didn't just work in, in Colombia. They also did nasty things everywhere. Um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, they through all these different documentations, um, you're able to kind of see that the practice of um, using images and imagery and constant recording was very much continued. Um, and it was very much used also as a, as a method to prove to Colombia um, from the perspective of the US that this technique was working, right? So we know, we know, we know from these documents that the US um, in collaboration with Colombia or Colombia in co- collaboration with the US documented every single flight that they did pretty much beginning in the 1980s until the practice was um, suspended. They documented every flight, recorded the GPS points. They even took photographs. Sometimes they took video. Does the, the, the general public have access to any of this data? No. Mm-mm. No. The only, only time that portion of this data was released um, was when Ecuador sued Colombia for transboundary harm in 2008 um, in the international, um, in the ICJ. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, they were, as, as Ecuador, they were able to kind of force 
the U.S. via FOIA, Freedom of Information Act, to release a very small portion of this data, which kind of was, you know, uh, along the border with 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 Ecuador. But you know, when when they released this data, I think it was for a period of five years, um, in a kind of thirty mile, thirty kilometer radius along the border, like there was something like over 200,000 flight paths recorded. Wow. Um, And this is for a very small portion of the country. And this is for a very small portion of the time that fumigation actually was conducted. So to give you an idea of the scale that we're talking about, that's over 240,000 fumigation events in, you know, only along the border effectively in Nariño and in Putumayo, think about the whole country. Mm. Think about the whole country's territories and also the decades that this was done. Mm. Um, and then think about the level of secrecy around that. Wow. So, you know, this is, this is a massive thing that, you know, the U.S. State Department actually holds this data and they hold this data um, you know, from also the Colombian public. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a 50-year, it's a 50-year, I guess, the, the data's held and then there's Freedom of Information Act after that, or can they then, can they suppress it further? So we've been, yeah, there have been efforts, not only by Ecuador, but also myself, <laughs> of soliciting this, this, uh, this material. I mean, any citizen can also um, file a Freedom of Information Act. The National Security Archives, which is a project that I brought up before, works mm. on FOIAs. Um, you know, that's how they get most of their, their documents declassified. Um, and it's, it is possible to get this data de- declassified and out there. It's just going to require a big push, um, probably not just from an individual researcher mm. such as myself, but um, from a bigger movement. Um, you know, we, as, as the project working with the Colombian Truth Commission that I was leading with forensic architecture, we solicited um, we actually solicited the data from the Colombian National Narcotics Police. Um, their response to us was quite interesting because they said that the U.S. Embassy were the ones that held this data and who actually were in charge of it. And then when we pushed them a little bit further, you know, naturally we, we asked for we asked for all the data. We asked for all the, the years. They they decided to give us one year data. Um, 2015. Wow. 2015, yeah, the the last year of fumigation. That was our lucky year that they decided to give us. So as you can see, there's a bit of a contradiction that starts to emerge when, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the the National Narcotics Police was very much collaborating with the U.S. on collecting Mm -hmm. this data. And it's not as if they, yeah, don't have it. Um, the other large body that has this data is the UNODC, that's the UN Office on Drugs and Crime, um, that has been producing reports um, that are, well, were available to the public um, on their website uh, for very many years. And, you know, they were producing these reports about coca growth and statistics, right, around that. Um, and they would, of course, use the fumigation and eradication data to factor into their um, their uh, analysis. Mm. So they would also be another um, institutional body that has that data. Their official answer to me, though, is that 
much like the Colombian police is, you know, they are not the one, the custodians of this data. Um, that is the U.S. Mm, it makes it difficult. Have you worked with Mike Evans at uh, the... Yes, yeah. he's, he's the one who put together the DynCorp papers yeah. for us. Well, um, he was on the show many years ago talking about this thing. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, no, he's, he's been fantastically helpful um, yeah. in in this effort, um, also to the whole Truth Commission in general, which mm. has benefited a lot from the National Security Archives. It's, I mean, it, you know, this, this, as you say, it's like this, it, it's a continuation of these dirty wars uh, and this, this clandestine uh, way of, of doing a business that, uh, when you talk about that number of flights you're talking about the number of flights down there, Nariño, Putumayo, of course, across the Ecuadorian border. I'm trying to think, I'm trying to put in my head the actual flight hours. Yeah, how many planes? I mean, it's, it almost feels like, you know, 24 hours a day they must have been flying these fumigation efforts. But I want to move on to a little bit. And one thing is the consequence of the glyphosate uh, spraying, and I think in Caqueta, Guaviare, Putumayo, of course, Meta, is, and, and again, in this article, this academic article you wrote, it pushes the farmers from their sterile lands now that it's been fumigated. And then you get the land in in several cases or many cases, and you can correct me, uh, reappropriated by destructive well, no, reappropriated by farmers, uh, the cattle farmers, let's say. So they move in to graze. Uh, I, I see this as a type of sort of colonization moving, pushing the frontiers of, of the jungle, the forest back. And then this land is then reappropriated by destructive industries such as petroleum uh, exploration, palm oil, and of course, cattle farming as well. I mean, I found that really interesting that there's this whole process because the idea for me is that, okay, the land's sterile, it's it's gone, it's finished. But can you tell us a little bit about your investigations that resulted in that the knowledge of that chain of events? Yeah, so this is very much, you know, coming from fieldwork um, and looking at the dynamics of land use, uh, you know, in the Andes-Amazonian transition belt. Um, and everywhere, it's important to say it's a bit different uh, in Colombia, but you know, the transition and the, the role that eradication plays in, in the inland transitions um, is, is still very under understood, under understood. Um, and, you know, the, the work that I hope to hope to achieve is, is to really like isolate like what role that has played um, in the perpetuation of land grabbing um, and, you know, the onset of larger industries I think what you can really observe, observe, though, just kind of from the onset is that, you know, there is a continuation and, you know, certainly this isn't like a black and white issue. Like the government might hope to to, you know, argue that, you know, the illicit and the illicit are very much relying on each other um, in these contexts. So, you know, what might be used for a quote-unquote illicit purpose um, is very much capitalized on and reappropriated down the line for illicit use, right? So you might see a transition between, yeah, a coca crop 
you know, the, the farmers might, they, they could be displaced for very many reasons. Mm. Like the, the soil sterilization issue is one of them. You know, the, the issue with that is that glyphosate doesn't immediately start to, um, you know, completely sterilize everything. This is the longer term effect where, you know, farmers who've been fumigated for like, let's say 20 years now, like just notice their, their farms are not producing <laughs> like they used to. So, you know, with this in mind, like, yeah, you, you have to find another plot of land. So you will move deeper into the forest also perhaps where it's, um, you know, more hidden and you, you know, you will continue to grow coca. Um, and this is a dynamic that is not a secret by any means. Also, the UN self has, has observed this, that, you know, coca trends, they say, on the ground are, you know, pretty um, cons- consistent um, in, area, in certain areas um, of the country. So, you know, the, the transition mode, you know, when, when, a, when a plot of land is is let's say abandoned um, and then eventually is taken over by um, let's say the people, the the groups that might have moved into an area. Very carefully um, put. Yes. <laughs> this this um, you know this land can very easily be sold, sold mm. on um, to larger landowners um, who are also, let's say, in control of the area. You can look at this very clearly in Guaviare. Um, and you know, they're, they're going to use that land to be, um, you know, first of all, it's often used as cattle because that's a great transition, um, transition economy. And then, you know, from there, depending on the region that you're in and the kind of exploitation that, uh, is done in Putumayo, again, this, this, I, I look a lot at petroleum extraction, um, but in other areas, it's other things. So, you know, this, this transition can be can be observed, mm. um, but again, I would say that even in my own work, this this needs to be studied more. Um, but that the issues to access of data and reliable data, let's say, especially of these fumigation events, um, really needs to be made public because then you could really fully understand these larger dynamics at play. Mm. Um, and not just kind of attempt to understand them on like a smaller scale as I've done just using, you know, field work and the few, few shreds of data that we can kind of extract from the national police. Uh, yeah. Um, they're an interesting bunch when it comes to that, but what I let, we have to, we've only got a few minutes, but I need to bring it right up to the present day because it's, you know, we're recording this <laughs> on the, I think it's the 23rd today. Um, and on Sunday, we have the first round of the presidential elections. Uh, well, it could be the only round, but it most likely the first round. The two front runners, Gustavo Petro and uh, Federico Gutierrez. My understanding is that fumigation is brought to an end under Gustavo Petro. Well, at least I'm sure that Francia Marquez, his vice presidential nominee, you know, grand uh, defender of all things environmental and award winner, internationally renowned, she will push for that as well. I'm sure she will, if she gets, if they win, should they win, they will get in and uh, pursue a more environmental uh, policy. And Federico Gutierrez, I found his campaign or his his proposals very nebulous on 
this subject, uh, and I suppose we suggest that he is the candidate uh, of continuity in Colombia. How do you feel, as you know, an expert in this field, how do you feel things might pan out with either of these candidates? Well, I think um, La Cia, Bacia, um mm. published uh, an analysis on this a few days ago, actually, or yeah, more than a few days ago now. But, uh, you know, an overview of the candidates and their, um, you know, approach mm. to drug policy. And it's very notable that um, Federico Gutierrez is like, yeah, the only one who's basically following the uh, status quo, let's mm. say, in the status quo for everyone who doesn't know in Colombia is not great. It's mm. everything that we've just been talking about. Militarized um, prohibition and eradication. Um, and yeah, very strong focus on, on that. Um, so I think what you can, what you can expect to see if he is voted in is, is very much more of the same, mm. which I, I have to um, say is is not in keeping with also what was agreed on with the um, the mm-hmm. peace accord. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with, there would be an insistence and escalation of crop substitution and support for various agrarian communities that needed vast amounts of um, infrastructural and financial support to move away from coca production. Um, but also, it's a continuation of war. Just yep. point blank there i mean you 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 have a the eradication of coca cannot be seen as separate from the violence of the armed conflict because in so many of these different regions that is how a lot of the armed conflict arrived militarized eradication that also killed people directly killed people and it is still killing people i mean just you know, about five weeks ago, you had a massive massacre um, of cocaleros in, in Putumayo, actually at a at a party. Um, and, you know, this was conducted by the military. Um, and, you know, this is in the midst of, of all of this, of course, the run up to the elections and everything. And, and the military still feels they have a level of immunity to conduct these acts of violence because these communities and also this, this substance, this plant is so criminalized, so demonified. So, you know, what, what these other candidates are kind of, you know, I, I hope could bring is a, is a shift of that, of that paradigm mm. so that we're no longer criminalizing people who cultivate or consume actually um, these, these so-called illicit substances. And then, you know, that would actually lead to a, um, you know, shift with, with dealing with this thing of, of drugs in a, in a way that is, is going away from a militarized, um, violent kind of reaction into one that treats it like on a public health scale, but also um, adapting it into, you know, the, the illicit regulated economy. Mm. But I mean, we've had experts on before talking about this, the, the need for regulation, the need for regulation and, and, and again, seeing it as a, a health issue, as a health, something public health. And well, I, you know, is there, I, I'm kind of left speechless with the, the depth of your knowledge on this, Hannah. And 
I, as I mean, as you sort of mentioned in your articles, the militarization of nature, this, this again, the, the security policy to try and protect vast swathes of the country, but also at the same time, it's the militarization in this, I mean, you know, eradication of what is a sacred crop, but of course used in many cases nefarious means. Uh, and you mentioned it in the previous. Uh, conversation we had in episode 413 this type of environmental violence uh, that affects these lands and i don't know i mean where I, it's it's one of those things where the questions remain uh, the answers may be aware the regulation and the preventing of this fumigation but at the same time these you know, the powers that be have different, <laughs> I want to say, economical plans <laughs> for for the land and, and for Colombia or even elsewhere. As you say, things have been used in Mexico, Afghanistan, Guatemala, you mentioned, Peru to some extent, and I'm sure elsewhere, but I, you know, I, my knowledge is not, not nearly anywhere near yours. Uh, so I, I, I mean, is there anything you'd like to add at the end of this, this conversation? Is there anything that we've skipped over because it's been quite profound in truth <laughs> well i i think i think what i would put on the table is just for everyone to keep in mind that in this moment of transitional justice in colombia that um you know if you want to talk about reconciliation and reparations of you know victims who uh, you know of the armed conflict as people are very much discussing right now um, the issue of cocaleros, so poco growers and campesinos, small-scale farmers who ha- are victims very much of, um, you know, the the violence that this, you know, the industry and the eradication um, effects are is is not recognized, and there are real reparations needed at this point, um, and you know, until this is is recognized on a, on a national level, it's it's really like a lot of the violence of the armed conflicts stands to go unrecognized. Mm. Um, so that's what, what's at stake. Mm. Um, I think I'll just plug the article a little bit. If, if you want to read more about this, um, the article that we've been referring to is called Extinction in Transition, Coca, Coal, and the Production of Enmity in Colombia's Post-Peace Accords Environment. Um, and this is in the Journal of Political Ecology. Um, so we, we give a broader perspective, also bringing in discussion coal um, as an industry in the, in the article. But you can find that also on my academia.edu page. I hate that page, but I'll, I'll, I'll eventually get a website um, together and, and I won't have to say that. But, you know, it does collect articles. <laughs> I, um, I have the PDF of this if anybody's interested as well so i can just forward it on you can just get in touch with me it's also on the journal's website there you go there you go well listen hannah martin meseros dr hannah martin meseros martin sorry meseros martin thank you so much for your time and this you know very unselfish way of explaining everything uh you know this is your research this is clearly your baby uh but you've shared you've shared it with all of us uh someone's trying to get in and speak to you but that's okay Sorry about we've that. come we've come to the end now uh i i have the article if anyone wants to read it i'm would be more than happy to pass it on uh but let's just say thank you so much to hannah for her time and i know that people will have enjoyed this episode yeah i hope everyone um has learned a lot about the history of 
herbicides and fumigation. <laughs> um, and yeah, I'm, I'm very much around and would love to come back on the show at some point. Oh, um, we'll have you so back. For having me. We'll have yeah. you back when there's a new, a new topic, uh, you know, a new angle on these subjects. We'll definitely have you back. Well, I've got to take a moment and just say thank you to our sponsors for the, uh, for the Columbia Calling podcast this week, episode 425. Uh, the Columbia Calling podcast is sponsored by Latin News, which is a leading source of political and economic analysis on Latin America and the Caribbean since 1967. Their flagship publication, the Latin American Weekly Report, provides a behind-the-scenes brief on all the week's key developments throughout the region, sign up for a free 14-day trial at latinnews.com. Our other sponsor, of course, is brought to you, BNB Columbia Tours, experts in custom-made travel throughout Colombia. The team at BNB Columbia Tours can provide you with fantastic private experiences, creating wonderful memories of Colombia for a lifetime. Check out the website at bnbcolombia.com. Complete your free itinerary form there and tell them that Columbia Calling sent you and you'll receive a further 5% of their already great prices. So thank you to Latin News and thank you to BNB Columbia Tours and thank you to Hannah Mazeros Martin for her time. This has been episode 425 of the Columbia Calling podcast. If you are listening and before the 29th, go out and vote. All of you, vote, vote, vote. It matters. It counts. Uh, you know, I, I don't care who you vote for, but I want lots of people to go out and vote. Show that uh, you know it's not such a low turnout, please. Anyway, that's me for today. We'll be back next week with more information and great interviews about Colombia. Thank you again, and goodbye. My little brother's friends have been camped out at our place for two days straight. Three. It's because of the Xfinity 10G network. Internet that can handle a house full of screens at once with like basically no interruptions. And it's only getting faster. When I was their age, internet like this was a pipe dream. You sound like my grandpa. Please go home. Introducing the next generation 10G network only from Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas.